The day that I met Jake Cosgrove is a day that I will probably never forget. I remember pulling up to his house in my Uber a couple months ago on this insanely beautiful Saturday in the Heights. There were couples walking their dogs and getting coffee, children riding bikes and playing in the park. And Jake, at only 16 and already a good eight inches taller than me, really stood out. But not for any reason you might think. In between school and soccer and everything else that a teenage boy might get into, Jake Cosgrove is actually the owner and operator of his own museum. Which, as you might guess, doesn't exactly follow the conventional notion of the word. I'm on the corner uh, in front of my house, in my front yard, and I've got two tables, a dresser, and a clothing rack full of almost 400 artifacts, all from World War II. The Houston Heights Mini World War II Museum, as Jake calls it, has been up and running since the summer before he entered high school. He sets it out every other Saturday and encourages anyone and everyone to come look at, ask questions about, and even lay their hands on history. And none of it was particularly planned. Jake actually just sort of drifted into the interest. He's been into World War II since he was nine years old when he read All Quiet on the Western Front and somehow unearthed a passion for 20th century warfare. Even the way he found his first artifact follows the same sort of rhythm. That year, that same year, I was in Philadelphia, and I walked into a pawn shop, and they had a piece of trench art, uh, an ashtray, sitting on the counter, and I asked what it was. And they told me Merry Christmas, and it was like February. But I took it anyway. Uh, it was really cool. And that was really the first time I remember getting something from the era. I had been reading all about it, and then I got to lay my hands on something made by a soldier, and that was, that was incredible. Ever since that day, Jake has found himself at estate sales, thrift and antique stores, and websites like eBay, always trying to track down interesting and affordable relics to add to his already impressive collection. It's essentially, he says, a lot of knowing where to go and who to talk to, plus a bit of bargaining and fact-checking. Uh, you sort of got to learn the system, who has the stuff, who doesn't. Still, according to Jake, collecting isn't exactly an art form. A lot of it is just serendipity. I don't really ever look for anything in particular. It just shows up and I'm like, oh, that would look in the museum. All of Jake's items are fascinating, drowning in history and tragedy and everything in between. With over 400 remnants of the war, the mini museum has what I can assume is a pretty comprehensive overview of the era, both in terms of battlefield tools and home front propaganda. And because of their age and origin, a lot of the artifacts he owns have deep significance, both historical and personal. Some are harrowing. He wrote to his cousin saying, I would like a souvenir. Can you do that for me? And so we got him this jacket, and I have the letter saying where he got it. He got it from a child soldier that he captured in a battalion in the jungle in the Philippines. Others patriotic. Uh, this flag that you see under here, it's a sun and service banner. So a mother made this out of jersey material, and it's got two stars, two blue stars, which two means two children in service. Others even reminiscent of the present. When we captured Germans, they went to prisoner of war camps in America. They can make these wooden plaques and sell them to American mothers. So this was an Italian prisoner, and he made this plaque that says, To my mother, North Africa, and he could sell it for about 10 cents. According to Jake, there have been nothing but positive responses from those who've discovered his mini-museum. People love that he wants to share the history of an era like World War II. Besides its immense global significance, the war and everything surrounding it affected millions of families and individuals in incredibly personal ways. A lot of Jake's artifacts were actually given to him by veterans or their relatives. 
people whose ties to these donations are irreplaceable, people who want their stories told but don't quite have the means to do it themselves. Like I said, these artifacts come to me, and when people come by and say, like, this was my grandfather's, that just means a lot, and, like, thank you for doing that, and I'll preserve the history. And normally they say, like, it's just sitting in my attic, and I've got nothing to do with it, and if you're sitting out here on Saturdays preserving it, I'd like that more. And I think it's really nice, and I love it. One of Jake's favorites is a series of photos from a routine bomb strike given to him by a man named Pat Seglia who now lives in River Oaks. He actually gave me a bunch of his original. He was in charge of photography and aerial gunning on a B-24 over Germany. He flew 35 missions. And he came to the museum that day and he talked to me for a long time. And he ended up, I went to his house, I got to speak with him. And he gave me these pictures, and they were pretty incredible. I went to a recruiter, and he told me to uh, to get my parents to sign the the slip that would allow me to get in. And uh, after a lot of discussion, my mother signed, but my father said he wouldn't stop me, but he wouldn't sign. So I had a friend of mine forge his name. Pat graduated from high school in 1941 and volunteered to join the American Air Corps the following year when he was 19, only about 36 months older than Jake is now. At the time that Pat stepped up, they weren't drafting kids his age. He went in knowing that he wanted to fight. He was stationed in a town called Bengay in the English county of Suffolk. As a member of the 446th Bomb Group, he and his colleagues went on 35 missions over the course of the war. They flew about 6 to 12 hours each time, struggling to maintain formation while zigging and zagging and evading enemy flyers. (laughs) Yeah, I was scared. Really? Uh, uh, Well, you you don't know what's going to happen. Each each mission was different. you're in, in a certain slot in the formation, and uh, you, you couldn't move away from it. So when they're bombing you, uh, you have to just keep flying straight. You, you didn't know what was going on. And you, you see airplanes being knocked down and uh, smoke coming out of them and people jumping out, and it, it was nerve-wracking. Those photos that Pat gave Jake show the planes flying in formation, dropping dozens of bombs onto the ground below. Looking at them, they didn't feel real at all, like a weird painting or something out of a movie. But it was very real, and scenes just like the one in that photo happened hundreds of times over the course of the war. And like Jake told me, Pat had been there. He'd taken those photos. He knew what it was like to fly planes and drop bombs. And believe it or not, the pictures were actually just part of a routine to make sure that everyone was doing what they were supposed to be doing. As Pat told me, they weren't there for publicity or historical preservation. They were there to do a job. Uh, what they did was, uh, on every mission, they, they gave a camera to someone in one of the planes. And I got the camera, they gave me the camera twice. Mm-hmm. And, and my, the object of, of the camera was to take pictures of formation and, uh, and the bomb strike, mm-hmm. if you could. According to Pat, after living and fighting with the same people for so long, you get really close. 
but not everyone is going to survive. And as you get closer and closer to the finish line, you begin to doubt that you'll be one of the lucky ones. To get 35 missions uh, mm-hmm. took almost 10 months. And, uh, uh, you know, you, you start with one and, <laughs> and you're looking forward to 34 more. It's, it, it's got to be kind of rough. Uh, I bet. And when you get close to 35, you're, you're worried that, will I make it? Yeah, it? It's a different, it was a different world. He feels that trying to explain combat to someone who's never experienced it, someone like me, is a lost cause. It's impossible to empathize without having seen it firsthand, no matter how hard you try to understand. That war was so different than any other war. And it'll never happen again because they got airplanes now that uh, can do almost anything. And it's like I, I mentioned, if, if you haven't been there, it's impossible to, to try and tell you. you. You could talk to somebody that, that's been there and you can relate. But uh, if, if you haven't been there, it's impossible because it was so crude. And we lost so many airplanes and people dying in our group alone, so. But despite the fear and the pain that came with the job, Pat doesn't regret fighting. Well, the the only thing is that uh, we we were uh, asked to do a job and and, uh, help America and our allies. Mm -hmm. And, And we did it. Uh, it was a big sacrifice for a lot of people, and I was one of the lucky ones. And uh, uh, I don't know if I'd do it again, knowing what I know, but uh, I'm glad I did. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it gives me uh, comfort that uh, we completed the job that needed to be done. This doesn't apply anymore. He argues that in his experience, the nature of war has changed, and not for the better. And now they're, they're fighting these other stupid wars that uh, we got nothing to gain and everything to lose. Mm-hmm. The, the guys that are causing it, they'll never go. They always send, they send soldiers out to get killed as if the, the, they were dealing cards, uh, it, it means absolutely nothing to him. But the, that, that guy carrying that gun, he's got a lot to worry about. For now, Pat holds on to his memories of the war. He still has his old uniform and a few Polaroids that he took with his buddies, but he hasn't ever visited any museums except for Jake's. He says that in a lot of cases, there's no use in displaying history, especially for those who will never fully understand what any of it really meant. But what happens when, as both he and Jake mentioned to me, the last of the World War II veterans dies out? What happens when there's no one left to share these memories? No one left to even remember? I just think keeping the stories alive and the artifacts there um, and just preserve that whole idea of the war is key and that's why 
got to do it. Um, I mean, not a lot of collectors even put their stuff out on display. And so I just wanted to let people do it so it's not behind glass cases and so they can touch it and feel what was there and see what was there. Jake obviously doesn't see it the way Pat does. With his mini-museum, he wants to make sure that that history is accessible to everyone. No matter if he or I or anyone else will ever be able to understand it the way that Pat can, Jake wants to remind us of what happened, even when there's no one left to tell the stories that he's sharing. But let's face it, what makes this history worth remembering? What makes it even possible? Is it enough to have material artifacts and written records like Jake puts in his museum? Or can we only trust what we have left of the fading memories that Pat and other World War II veterans carry with them? Eventually, there will be no one left who was there. No one like Pat to pass on stories of the sights and the sounds and the stir of emotions. But there will always be people like Jake, people who have passion and ambition and tangible proof of what happened. But is that enough? I guess we'll just have to wait and see.